Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hi, this is Kate Dessler. I'm an assistant professor at Western Washington University, where I study and teach American politics and the politics of school reform. I'm sitting here with Johann Niem, professor of history at Western Washington University, to talk about his book, Democracy, Schools, The Rise of Public Education in America. Johann and I have known each other for more than 20 years, since we were students together of Ted Sizer and worked together at his school reform organization, the Coalition of Educational Schools. I'm really excited to talk with Johann about his book, which, while focusing on the 19th century, has a lot of ramifications for those of us who think about school reform today. Johann, can you tell me a little bit about why you decided to write this book? Thank you for having me here, Kate, and spending this time with me. Um, I decided to write this book primarily for two reasons. First, I was worried that citizens and policymakers didn't have a go-to book for the formative era of American public education. Many of the books in the field were published in the 60s and reflected, or, or even the 70s and 80s, and they kind of reflected the politics of the era. They were highly critical of public education, whether from the right or the left. And I felt at a time when our public discourse around education is becoming increasingly vocational and instrumental, I wanted people to have a place to go to remind, Ameri- to remind Americans why we have public schools in the first place. Not that I'm not critical, not that a lot of the critiques weren't valid, but I think they offered only part of the story and I wanted to offer a more full story. What surprised you when writing this book? I think one of the things that surprised me was how committed education reformers in the antebellum era particularly were to liberal education. Um, I didn't expect that at all. That was not something that seemed clear among many of the books that I had read. We often think of antebellum reformers as kind of boring and and stiff. And I was surprised by how inspiring some of their language was about increasing Americans' access to the subjects of the liberal arts and sciences, but also doing so just to cultivate the imagination, to give people a richer understanding of the world. Yes, also citizenship mattered, but their, but their vision was broader than citizenship, and that surprised me. Can you tell me a little more about that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that we know that starting with people like Thomas Jefferson after the revolution, that leading Americans worried about whether, whether young people would be prepared to be citizens in a democracy. And, sudden, and certainly that language is there, and it's prominent all the way up through the Civil War. And I think it matters because today we don't seem to talk as much about citizenship. But there was this other piece where they would, where reformers, whether it's someone giving a speech out in the Midwest or it's Horace Mann, would refer to the faculty of the imagination. And 
And this faculty, and they thought of the brain, it's broken up into different faculties and um, reason and imagination. They thought of imagination as this creative capacity that enabled people to go beyond analysis to really see something new and to re-envision the world in front of them. And they thought, you know, that to do that well requires studying literature and history and chemistry and geology or and and they felt both from a democratic as well as from their own Christian perspective that to deny some people access to this deeper understanding of the world was unconscionable. And so there was a real egalitarian spirit about just liberating human beings. That's really interesting because I think for many of us, I mean, certainly my image of the 19th century schoolhouse is one that is didactic and bordering on autocratic. Um, which brings me to my next question. As someone who studies the implementation of policy reforms in our own era, in the contemporary era, I was really struck between the tension between, on the one hand, these ideals that you speak about of, vir of civic virtue, of imagination, of creativity, that were put forth by the reformers who promoted common schools, and a much messier reality on the ground. Um, the schools that they encouraged to flourish didn't always look exactly as they intended them to. And I was wondering if you could speak about that. Yeah, that is definitely true. They did not look exactly as they, as the reformers might have thought about them in their minds. And, you know, my chapter is chapter four on teachers and students. And I spend quite a bit of time reading diaries um, and memoirs by teachers and by students in the common schools. And in some ways, I think of this chapter as just a reminder on one hand of how hard school reform is because many of these reformers hoped for schools to become really kind of inspiring places mm -hmm. and most public schools remained, um, you know, very local. Most teachers didn't have much training. Um, the local community had its own kind of grammar of schooling and it was hard for the teachers who might have been trained in the new normal schools with new ideas to try to implement a more democratic pedagogy. Um, one of my goals in this chapter was also to remind us, you know, particularly scholars who, whether from the left or from the right, tend to see schools as total institutions of just how porous they were. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that we shouldn't overestimate in some ways how how much the school can dominate a student's life or um you know students would talk a lot about school but rarely did it sound like they were just inspired a lot of it was about recess or snowball fights and um and teachers in their diaries struggled with you know the daily realities of managing a mixed age classroom and um and yet, you know, there were moments where people clearly were inspired, and especially in the memoirs, whether it's a memoir of a student in a school or, you know, a teacher looking back. But particularly for students, it's like, you know, I went through this schooling, but it taught me how to read, and I've loved reading ever since. You have comments like that as well. So it's not that it never worked, but schools are messy, complicated places. Teachers and students are responding to you know, the expectations of parents, of citizens, of their own backgrounds and aspirations. And all of that comes together in these, in these schools and they don't look like any one vision. Um, they look, they're, they're just messy and that's, that's part of their reality. Right. 
No, and that really resonates with what what we see today, right? Which is that schools and teachers and students are responding to multiple pressures from multiple in influences, including different structures, including different norms. And all of those play out not in a linear, but often in a, in a more unpredictable fashion. What would you say is new about your book in comparison to other books in the field? Others have written about the history of this era, the origins of common schools. So what do you offer that other books don't? I think there's several things that I try to say that hopefully will change our narrative about the development of public schools between the revolution and the Civil War, the formative era of our public school systems. One thing that I do that's different than books that were written in the 70s, like Carl Kessel's Pillars of the Republic, is I start with ideas, and I believe that ideas really matter, and that the ideas of education reformers shaped what happened in politics and in the development of our institutions. So I want to offer, I offer a kind of ideal picture of what they wanted, what a democratic education looked like from them, from their perspective. Um, but then I want to say, you know, like we live in a democracy. And so this democratic education had to enter the messy realities of education in a democracy where citizens and parties and parents and taxpayers um, disagreed with each other. And that this ideal, like any reform ideal in the history of American educational reform had to make it in the in the political world and sometimes it did and sometimes it didn't i think there's a couple other pieces that that are new one is i have a chapter on the development of the schools as institutions and i look very closely at how did the state manage to create a mass system and we often just think about it as a top down thing and how states passed laws and those laws mandated certain hours of schooling or, or weeks or months or whatever. Um, and in fact, public schooling was very much a grassroots movement and the state tapped into the local energies of people. And so in many ways, there's a story about state development. And as the schools developed, they brought in more stakeholders, more parents. Um, and as they did so, they also gained greater support. And so there's a, there's a bottom-up component to the development of our public schools that I think sometimes we overlook. One thing that strikes me as you talk about that is the ways in which, particularly if we look today, we, you know, across the nation, our, our schools look really similar to one another. And I'm wondering in these early years in terms of, you know, in this bottom-up process, to what extent was there greater diversity in the, kind, in the ways schools operated and to what extent were there binding institutions that were already at that period putting pressure on schools or, or encouraging schools to look common? You've referred earlier to the common, sort of a grammar of schooling. Well, I think it depends where in the story you are. So if you're starting in the 1780s, where my book opens after the American Revolution, you have real diversity. Um, of, of types of schooling and very few kind of common institutions. So you see in these first decades after the revolution development of chartered academies that offered a kind of liberal education, um, but were you know, not mass institutions available to everyone, not always supported with the same level of taxation. 
you see people hiring tutors, you see people just getting together in their neighborhoods and form, you know, hiring someone and calling it a school. And, and what the reformers in the 1830s, 40s created was a national conversation over school reform. And, you know, Horace Mann was a leading voice in Massachusetts, but his words and ideas were reprinted in magazines and he traveled and communicated with reformers around the country. And there was a kind of reform community that developed. And their aspiration was to create a more common understanding of the schools. And by the time you get to the Civil War, there's more of that. Um, you know, there's the emergence of a kind of um, understanding of what schooling ought to look like. You start to see the very early emergence of graded schools with like, you know, grades for different levels. You start to see the idea of the high school emerging and the very first high schools. Um, but if you move around the country, you'll still have a lot, you know, the majority of schools were still one-room schools. And often students would bring whatever books they had or were handed down from their siblings. Or, um, and so on one hand, that's, that created a lot of confusion and diversity from the perspective of reformers. It too was a kind of, you know, common experience because people were meeting in the same buildings. Mm -hmm. but, but we are moving towards a more common understanding of schooling, in part because there was a national conversation in the 1830s, 40s about the aspirations of schooling, the kinds of schoolhouses people would need, um, the ways in which tax support ought to be provided. So by the Civil War, I, I think you have a more national understanding, although institutions still diverged quite a bit from, from what might have been a normative model. Interesting. So amidst our talk about common schools, right, is the... Um, the reality that we all know, which is that the common schools did not, in fact, cover everyone, right? And I'm interested in hearing you speak to those groups that that were not included as part of this common division. Sure. I mean, I think the, the largest group that in some ways was not included were enslaved people. Um, and as we know in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, in fact, the southern states, out of fear of the power of literacy, actually moved to make sure that even, um, that enslaved people did not learn how to read. Um, one of the things I talk about is how enslaved people nonetheless created clandestine schools um, where they taught each other literacy. So there were always sufficient numbers of literate enslaved people but the other group, of course, are free African-Americans, and their story is more complex. In the, in the antebellum era, on one hand, um, the barriers for full citizenship for African-Americans was going up. It was, you know, it was harder to vote. It was harder. Um, and that is seen in public schooling in some ways where in some states, public schools were definitely intended for white citizens. I mean, you actually have states that refund sometimes their tax collections to black citizens rather than provide public schools for them and allow them then say, okay, since you're not getting schooling, you can have the money back. Um, there were also integrated schools and there were, you know, it sort of depended on the state and even the community and in the North and in the Northwest, the old Northwest. And you have a real commitment on the part of African-American leaders towards integration. I mean, they had a recognition that as these schools expand, 
this is not only where people learn how to be citizens, but it's also a sign that you are a citizen, that you're a member of the political community. Mm -hmm. And so to be denied access to schooling was seen as a, was seen as a, you know, a greater violation of, of civic membership than it might have felt like earlier. And so African Americans are among the leading advocates of integrated public schooling in the North. And during Reconstruction, we know that African American leaders in the South um, were deeply committed to expanding public education. Interesting. Thank you. There were other groups that were skeptical, though, of whether these common schools could or should be institutions in which they felt a home, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the challenges that that antebellum reformers faced was that when schooling was localized and often, you know, more private, that people had some more choices. And so, for example, the, the growing number of immigrants who were Catholic, you know, were, were entering these common schools and discovering that implicitly the understanding of America was, even if not always stated explicitly, was Protestant and in many ways anti-Catholic. Um, and that was, that was, you know, whether, if you have a common school reader, um, there's a kind of implicit Protestantism, sometimes explicit Protestantism in it. Um, if you're going to have a Bible verse read, well, you know, which Bible verse from which Bible and is there going to be commentary or not? These kinds of things were really complicated. You also have Lutherans and others who, um, in Pennsylvania, for example, who had local schools that were tied to their church and their ethnic communities. And, and they, were re they resisted the idea that, that their children should enter these common schools. The challenge was that, and this is a challenge all democratic societies face. I mean, I think one of the things that I've struggled with when writing about this was the literature, especially by scholars of the left, is but now increasing by scholars of the right who are increasingly skeptical of common schools as well is you know sympathetic to the idea that um, religious minorities um, should not have a certain kind of public national schooling imposed upon them the challenge was that as america became more diverse um, there was also a need for something to hold a social order together and so school reformers struggled with this issue most tried to find some kind of compromise. Um, Non-sectarianism was considered a compromise, but if you were Jewish or Catholic, um, non-sectarianism was still a kind of, you know, generic Protestantism. Yeah. And even if you were a more evangelical Protestant, non-sectarianism felt a little bit like, you know, Protestantism without the Protestantism, and you said that's not really safe for my children. Um, and so it's an ongoing struggle, but I think it's, I wanted to frame it as a legitimate struggle. That's something that democratic societies struggle with or contend with is how do we have common institutions because we need them in a diverse society to hold us together and to create common values and norms. And how do we do that while also recognizing not just the rights, but the legitimate experiences that we, we want people to have in a diverse society. So you've talked about, you introduced this book 
at, or the, your purposes as seeking to respond to earlier writings and particularly this earlier almost anti-institutional view of the common schools. Are there other, you know, what other assumptions or other myths that you seek to take on that you haven't talked about thus far? I mean, I think, I think there are. I mean, I think one of the things that, that a lot of scholars have assumed is that the schools emerge largely to serve the economic needs of an industrializing society. And I, in fact, argue the opposite, that economic needs were not primary and many reformers actually sought to avoid using schools to serve market purposes. And I think this is particularly important in today's public conversations where we think of school reform primarily in terms of career readiness or college and career readiness. And we often think of college in vocational terms. So we're really talking about a lot of career readiness. That these were schools that were designed to develop citizens and to develop human beings. And if anything, some of the language about the market is about the ways in which an industrializing society changes um, working lives in ways that gives people fewer opportunities to develop themselves as full human beings. And schools were in a sense seen as compensatory, as providing spaces for the flourishing of the mind and heart and the imagination when workplaces wouldn't be those places. And so there's a kind of critique of modern work in some of these reformers' language. And so I question the idea that the primary function of schooling was always economic. Mm -hmm. I don't think that was true for these, for these reformers in this era. What do you hope that people will take away? What do you think are the most important, um, both sort of facts, but also and what, are, what, are the, you know, what is the crux of your book? What do you hope that no one reading the book will miss out on? I mean, in some ways, it's kind of simple. I want people to remember that the primary purposes of public schools are public. And that, what does that mean to say that we have public schools in a democracy? One, I think, is that I want people to take away that meant that we had to democratize access to liberal education, not just to prepare citizens, but to prepare insightful human beings. Two, I want to... Um, reiterate that the ways they became public had to do with increasing the number of stakeholders. And so we created public institutions, not just from the top down, but from the bottom up as people became committed and invested in the welfare of the schools and through those schools in the well-being of other people's children, which was not something that could be taken for granted at the time of the revolution. And it's something that we can't take for granted today. And the last piece I'd, I guess I would I would say is that because public education was so important, it also became central to American politics. And so e even if you have a reform goal that you really believe in, and many of the reformers that I write about believed in their vision, ultimately, it's going to be up to citizens and political leaders. And so we should also embrace the fact that education and democracy is political and it's legitimate to have citizens disagree and argue over the kinds of schools we want. And one of the things I try to show is how public education became a central political issue mm -hmm. to, our to our democratic politics. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, part of having democratic schools is that, and this comes through time and time again in your book, right, is that schools are both 
vehicles to promote and support democracy, but they are themselves part of the democratic process. Right. And, and that's, that's what makes it so hard for, for the, you know, any particular ideal to just enter and, you know, any particular school reform vision to just find itself entering a school unadulterated is that we argue over them. Yeah. How do you envision the lasting impact? of this book? What do you hope that this book will do, both historically and in terms of our own contemporary debates? Well, historically, I ho- or historiographically, I hope historians will start to think about institutions differently. I hope that they will say, okay, institutions are more fragile than we thought, their development is more complicated, um, and that also um, we can be critical and still find things to value in institutions and, and in people that are deeply flawed. I think for a more broad audience, I hope that we remember that public schooling is for public purposes and that, um, so there's an idealistic part of the book that says we need to remember that a broad liberal education prepares citizens well to participate in our democracy and it prepares human beings well to be more thoughtful and insightful and have richer lives. And those were both democratic aspirations. From an institutional perspective, at a time where we're debating various kinds of policies, I want to remind people that the success of public schools, you know, actually depended on them being mass institutions. That that at the time of the revolution, most people would have said, even if education was important to the well-being of the republic, parents were responsible for the education of their own children. By the Civil War, people agree that education is a public good. And part of my argument is it's not just because a whole bunch of reformers said it over and over again. Mm -hmm. It's because students and parents attended the same institutions and therefore learned to value those institutions and were willing to put their tax dollars there because their kids went there. But those tax dollars helped other people's kids too. Right. Thank you so much. I've really appreciated this conversation. This has been a great book. I've really enjoyed reading it. Um, And I hope that it will spur lots of conversations to come. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.